Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, with spring just around the corner, cherry blossoms budding here in the downtown of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. A change of season, the first quarter of 2022 wrapping up, and of course, here at our firm, it's a ritual that heralds Melman's quarterly slide deck. A must-read for policymakers and political influencers alike. The war in Ukraine is many things. First and foremost, it is human tragedy for the death and destruction it has wrought on the people of Ukraine. It is also, as our founding partner Bruce Melman contends in this quarter's slide deck, an end to the post-Cold War period of global affairs. Let's talk more about it. Bruce Melman, welcome to 14th and G. Always great being with you, Dean. Bruce, before we get into the deck proper, uh, summarize, if you will, uh, what the post-Cold War period has been. These three decades from the fall of the Berlin Wall through 9-11 and the war on terror to now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, you may even want to start uh, earlier than that. And everything we need to know can be summarized by McDonald's, the restaurant. McDonald's was (laughs) founded... In 1948, which, of course, shortly after World War II and the dawn of the Cold War, the United States versus the Soviet Union. And for decades, while millions and then billions enjoyed hamburgers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union faced off. Ultimately, the West capitalism prevailed over communism and the East. In 1990, two things realistically happened. It was the end of the Soviet Union, technically a year before that and a year after the Berlin Wall fell. But it's when the Moscow McDonald's opened up. In 2022, the Moscow McDonald's closed down. And it was in that 32-year period when there was a Moscow McDonald's run by the actual McDonald's Corporation, because it sounds like the Russians are now going to allow a knockoff McDonald's <laughs> to punish them. McDaryls. Um, yeah, right. McDowell's. McDowell's. Uh, McPutins. <laughs> but you know, we went through this period of uh, hyper-globalization. It was a unipolar world where America was dominant. Uh, we had the launch of the Internet Revolution across the United States, you know, an ability to increasingly enjoy peace and prosperity and focus on um, less existential things like culture wars. You know, you, you saw the rise of cable TV amplified thereafter by social media. So a big atomization happened both in how we get our news and the nature of how things feel. But if we go back when all said and done, I think we're going to realize that the 40-ish year period was uh, actually the aberration, that there usually is a right. war in Europe. And when there's right. not, that's the unusual. Yeah, it's it's an aberrant period. But, you know, the post-World War II period was was aberrant in some ways as well. You had three, three television networks, two national newspapers. Uh, everyone watched The Tonight Show. So while you had this increasing globalization uh, in the post-Cold War period, the culture fractured into a million different pieces to now, you know, your Twitter feed is your is your a la carte news service in, in a lot of ways, and people structure it the way they want to see it. No, that's a great observation, Dean, but it kind of cuts both ways, right? Because on the one hand... Uh, if we all watch the Tonight Show and I Love Lucy, that's you know we have uh, we have shared fact, shared reality, and shared experiences. On the other hand, that doesn't allow a lot of voices to get heard, and so you're a thousand percent right of the atomization enabled by so many channels. But there are also lots of channels. You know, if you love animals, then you have a channel where 
other animal lovers are in the old days, you know, maybe animal planet, but you know, you, you felt <laughs> marginalized or invisible. And so, uh, you know, think, think about what's happening with Russia and, and, uh, and Facebook right now is Facebook Putin's platform or is Facebook radio free Ukraine? And I think the answer is yes, yeah, both, both. Right. Well, there was a period there where the world, I guess, in the mid 2000s, the early the early 2010s, where the world felt very small, uh, where uh, every, everything seemed to be in reach. And in the last in the last five plus years, the world has gotten much, much bigger, much farther away. This post post Cold War period. What do we know? What do we not? What is it? Uh, what, what does it look like to you? Uh, defined by this, this, the start defined by this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot. You know, we tend to often just for organizational purposes to divide things in technological change, geopolitical change, and cultural change. Technologically, we're seeing the accelerating digital transformation of everything. The uh, the pandemic just accelerated the macro trend, but. You know, in some, the world, the World Economic Forum would call it the fourth industrial revolution. Mark Andreessen would say it's software eating the world. When all said and done, it's technology and digital technologies are transforming every industry, how we work, live, play, and learn. That's accelerating. So that's number one. That makes us all feel unmoored to the future, too. Uh, number two, you can take a look at the cultural aspects. And, you know, you already pointed out our media massively atomized even before social media. And so cable to compete was angertainment. Uh, and now that's all amplified by social media's need to get clicks and to drive advertising. Um, we have far more diversity in our workforce and our population, which I think is inherently a strength. It's a great feature of America, but it makes for less commonality and more difference. And, you know, and that uh, that requires a level of uh, listening and understanding that's that's harder. And then uh, geopolitically, you know, Ian Bremer at uh, Eurasia Group is uh, somebody I think super smart. Uh, and he's been talking about for now for a while what he calls the G0 environment. So, you know, we know the G7, we know the G20. His point is G0 is there is no any longer, there is no um, kind of unified set of nations. And what's fascinating, I'm actually emailing him, hoping he's going to write about this because he's so much smarter than I. This is one of the slides that didn't make it into the deck because I just don't, I haven't thought about it enough and I haven't read about it enough. But we know we, the United States, are on one side and we've seen Germany and France and the UK and Canada and a lot of our, you know, the old, we put the band back together in a lot of ways on the West. Um, we know Russia's on the other side. And China's sort of kind of with Russia, but not 100%. India is sort of kind of with Russia, but not 100%. The Saudis, same. Turks trying to be down the middle of the fairway. Israel's more with us than them, but they love to broker a peace. And, you know, great. Right. Anybody who brokers a peace, I'm happy. South Africa, you know, not quite sure where they stand. As the, the real medium-term future becomes the United States and China uh, competing for geopolitical dominance, uh, a huge amount of what's going on, I think, here is uh, is a bit of a proxy war and, and, and a proxy new cold war. Yeah. Proxy war. We're not, uh, we're not fighting, uh, we're not fighting it in Southeast Asia. We're not fight, you know, Korea, Vietnam, the, the, the proxy wars we fought in the cold war. It's a proxy war fought more in the culture and particularly at least what we're seeing in the initial sanctions rollout here against Russia in the global financial system. That's what yeah. I think is fascinating because the global financial system is 
it's predicated on a shared belief that it exists for everyone. And I wonder down the road, what kicking Russia out of the global financial system and saying you're unwelcome in any sense to participate in, in, in global finance, what that means for the system down the road, because it's only predicated on shared belief in a fiat currency system. I'm channeling my inner Ron Paul here. <laughs> well, so you're right, although actually we still have uh, one or two levels of sanctions where we could excommunicate them further. But you know, certainly this has been eye-opening in a couple of ways. We Everybody assumed there were kind of two ways that when these sort of things happen, two ways nations might engage one another and compete. One is militarily, kinetic, you know, your troops, my troops, um, or I give you weapons and your people fight my people. And two were sanctions, which as we saw with Crimea and others, were okay, but you know, uh, Putin thought he had sanction proofed his economy. In part, he was fighting the last war. He figured this was going to be like Crimea. It wasn't. Turns out sanctions have a whole different speed like you're describing. And that uh, is, is significant, world changing. But there's also a third leg to the stool that none of us quite expected, which is um, the level by which Western businesses, which are pretty important for products, for services, for markets, for jobs, um, decided that they would suspend and or divest from Russia was uh, surprising to me, was surprising to Putin, was, I think, surprising to the administration, surprising to the world, and I bet is surprising to the Chinese. You know, and, and what's fascinating, Dean, and I'm interested in your take, is we already knew that there are there's genocide in China, but genocide is not enough to have businesses kind of decide that they need a foreign policy. The invasion of Ukraine was, um, if China had invaded Taiwan first. I don't know what businesses would have said, right. but I think it's going to be pretty hard if China invades Taiwan for businesses not to say, well, the precedent's there. You got to do to China what you did to Russia, despite the fact that that is a way harder proposition for your balance sheet. What do you think? Well, I think I think one, it's very uh, it's very specific to Europe. And I think the Europeans uh, are looking in horror I mean, the 20th century was a slog that we're not going to go back to the day uh, where uh, one nation invades another by force and uh, and violates their sovereignty. Now, you know, that happened in uh, that did happen in Crimea in 2014. But this is another order of magnitude. And you're right the the default position, other than maybe the last 50, 60 years, but the default position has been war in Europe, largely since Western civilization began. China, China has to be looking at this. And I, I think you're right. They have to be, they have to be very concerned about sanction proofing themselves uh, if they do intend to take Taiwan by force. How they have trillions of dollars in the dollar-denominated assets, and and they're massively tethered to selling us their finished goods. Yeah, look, it's uh, one of the great unknowns: is uh, are we safer by having U.S. and China economies as tightly integrated as they are, or do we need to, uh, you know, to, to slow their competitiveness by separating? But it also gives them less, in theory, to lose if they do a step that uh, that causes further drastic separation. Um, and, and I don't know that there's an obvious answer to that. Obviously, uh, Tom Friedman's golden arches theory of conflict prevention is no longer apt because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. We have what's a slide. That, what's in there. that old saw? Two, two, two countries with the McDonald's have never gone to war. 
had never gone to war. Had never gone uh, to war. I assumed it was because uh, neither was in enough physical shape to go to war, but, but <laughs> that may not have been it. But we have a slide in there about, you know, what is China likely thinking now for purposes of attempting to sanction proof themselves? I, I didn't think that an invasion of Taiwan was imminent anyway, but it sure feels to me that this f- will cause them to realize they need more time, you know, to, to move dollars out of Western banks and into commodities or other things to you know, to shore up their own individual alliances and to try to um, figure out what they might be able to do to, to uh, that if they actually wanted to try by force, what, what can they do to protect themselves? The other thing about this that's fascinating is we all thought that there would be a sort of a Russian blitzkrieg and like Crimea, this would last right. a couple of days and they would take it over. Part of it is uh, Putin got screwed because he was trying to be buddy buddies with, with China. So he waited out the Olympics and while he was waiting at the Olympics, the Biden administration, to give them credit, was brilliant at dropping all of the real-time intel so that all of the Putin false flags and lies were exposed even before he could tell them, which was pretty smart. And Ukraine had enough time, it seems like, to set themselves up. Plus, it turns out Russia is is not nearly as uh, militarily competent as uh, as everybody presumed or feared. Um, they're you know they're really slogging it out here. Both because turns out, I think, though, you know, drafting people to fight for Putin and not paying them well and having leaders whose mission is to tell the boss what he wants to hear and not reality. That's not a formula for a crackerjack uh, military fighting force, uh, but also things like the use of drones, things like the use of social media by Zelensky, which has been absolutely Churchillian. If I'm thinking about invading Taiwan, I have to rethink, you know, there are some asymmetric capabilities that Taiwan may have that may make this harder than you know, who's got more planes and who's got more tanks. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the major miscalculations is President Zelensky uh, in Ukraine. He's been involved in our domestic politics, uh, certainly at the center of the first impeachment trial of President Trump uh, and the infamous uh, beautiful phone call. The guy's uh, but, an actor. The guy's like if Martin Sheen had been elected president. Right. Exactly. Right. He was he was the president Bartlett of Ukraine. And then they elected him president. And he turns into this uh, massively inspiring figure, uh, addressed our own Congress here last week. What do you make of this guy? He's the real deal. Some people are born great and others have greatness thrust upon them. them. You know, he he uh, he is not, nothing about his biography that he would be able to meet the moment with such guts and uh, and such uh, vigor and, and such extraordinary leadership, but he has. You know, it's one of the great don't misunderestimate people uh, reminders in life. Um, you know, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition or right. I need ammunition, not a ride. I mean, that's up there with uh, the Alamo. I mean, that is <laughs> as, as a badass a, a line. You know, he knows he's target number one. Like literally every other leader we can think of would be in London right now. You know, and, and uh, you know, and they'd be uh, getting out great, you know, great Indian food delivered to their uh, to their flat. Yeah. Uh, while they were, uh, you know, talking to their countrymen who were screwed back home. This guy's like, you know, put on the army, uh, the army T-shirt. I'm not I'm staying. That's he's a genuine hero. He's really impressive. And, and I think more than any other factor that has been the tide turner. Well, President Zelensky did address uh, our Congress, prompted uh, maybe the worst tweet of the year from Peter Schiff, who uh, asked if Zelensky didn't own a suit, <laughs> but he wasn't his green army fatigues T-shirt. What does this mean for our domestic politics? There's some there's some unanimity here, obviously, on sanctioning Russian Belarus Republicans 
are saying the administration has not gone far enough. The administration has been led a bit by a bipartisan coalition of members of Congress uh, to do more, particularly in the energy sector. You see, a ra- I don't see much of a rally around the flag effect here for the president's approval ratings. He's gotten a little bit of a bump, but I don't know if it's going to make much difference here in the midterms. So I think I agree with that. I mean, he did get a little bit of a bump, and I think uh, deservedly so. I agree with Carl Rove. I think the administration um, has, uh, after that not good press conference where the discussion of a small incursion might not uh, get such a bad response, I think that was bad. Since that moment, I think the administration has been pretty good. Um, But I do think uh, debate about whether the administration's handling this well is going to feature in the midterms, um, as well as blame for other things being either Putin or Biden. It's 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 frustrating when we want to show the world that uh, our strength, because our strength comes from our domestic unity. At the same time, have politics ever really stopped at the water's edge? No. I mean, Short remember the Daisy no. ad, the Daisy <laughs> TV ad by Go, by LBJ against Goldwater, a little girl picking flowers, and then is literally obliterated by a nuclear explosion. Remember Dukakis in the tank. Bear in the woods. Um, bear in the woods. Uh, Mondale, Reagan. No the shameful Ford. hits on Max Cleland. I'm not proud of those from uh, from uh, from uh, people I know. Um, but, pol- uh, I mean, the, the war on terror itself was a was a was a wedge issue all through the 2000s. And then yeah, it, Harry Reid wanted to um, the late great Harry Reid wanted to uh, impeach George W. Bush over over 06 and the Dems. That's how they picked the House and the Senate back up in 2006. You know, they're going to fight about inflation. Is it Biden inflation or the Dems are trying out the phrase Putin's price hike? I don't see bumper stickers uh, proliferating with that one. You know, um, Bruce, but- one of the most sort of wow slides you had in the deck, and I'd, I'd never heard this stat before, but one, you talk about food insecurity and, and, and price inflation. One in eight calories uh, traded between countries comes from Russia, Ukraine, and Ukraine's been the breadbasket of Europe for centuries. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an NPR stat, uh, but I'm I'm the master of finding things other people figured out and throwing them into the uh, the crazy <laughs> slide deck soup. There are lots of downstream collateral risks. Uh, food food insecurity is the biggest one. You know, we go back to the so-called Arab Spring in 1940 in uh, 2014. You know, and some folks like to say it's because of social media. It's not. It's because of food inflation, and, and I think it's 80 percent of the wheat consumed in Egypt which was an Arab Spring ground zero fertilizer, which is critical to folks all over, all around the world. This is more than just, you know, with food and inflation, you and I are going to find at the, uh, at the river falls uh, giant. Um, this is, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of countries where this could topple governments. Yeah. Um, and uh, it has, you know, it's, it's, it will lead to hoarding. It will lead to less exporting, you know, anybody who feels like what happens in Russia, Ukraine stays in Russia, Ukraine, isn't adequately aware of things like, the downstream of food, or for that matter, you know, Russia's airlines are going to stop flying because they don't have the spare parts, but they don't actually, Russia doesn't own, Russian airplanes, Russian airlines don't own the airplanes. That's a bunch of Irish leasing companies that are just, you know, just have been rocked because of the sanctions because they own the airplanes that are now not flying. No, it's a great point. I mean, if any one thing fomented the French revolution, it was not aristocrats in carriages. It was the price of flour. Uh, and the bread riots, uh, the bread riots in Paris, uh, uh, this is historically what topples governments is. Give is me baguettes idea. or give me death. Yeah. <laughs> Let them eat cake. 
Well, Bruce, what does it mean? We're talking to clients. Uh, we've counseled a lot of clients on on these issues from the Olympics through through now uh, the Ukrainian sanctions. But this this age of of corporate participation in societal issues. What do you tell What do you tell C suites? What do you tell folks in government relations for? Uh, for these companies, uh, we've seen a lot of divestment uh, out of Russia, but but how do you manage this going forward? Because this is not the you know this is not the last time corporate America will confront these issues. Yeah, no, of course you're right, Dean. Uh, number one, we point out that the era of business neutrality is over, and it goes back way before the Olympics, of course. I mean, I'd go back to uh, to the bathroom bills, which were stupid in Texas and North Carolina, where you saw the business community come together. You could argue it kind of got launched with the Occupy and and um, and Tea Party movements, which were attacking big businesses and, and dragging them into some of the social inequality questions. We saw it with Parkland. We saw it with the George Floyd murder. We saw it with the January 6th riots. Businesses increasingly need to pay much closer attention to political and geopolitical risks. They are far more likely to get dragged into things. That's thought one. Thought number two, um, they need to also remember they are still businesses. They're not NGOs. They're not political parties. Um, They shouldn't lose sight of their objective is to be an attractive workplace for workers of all backgrounds, to uh, to create attractive goods and services for consumers of all backgrounds. It's a fraught proposition, and while they need to pay huge attention because of the impact it can have on their businesses, they need to move with great care. They need to spend time thinking. Uh, They need to make sure they've got a thoughtful team that is diverse, that thinks through, should we weigh in? Why should we weigh in now? If we weigh in now, what is it going to mean for other times? The last thing we always advise our clients on this the best way to protect yourself from the, you know, either the woke mobs, as some would call them, or the, uh, or the, you know, the mob mobs, the, the, the reactionary folks, actions speak louder than words. Your deeds matter the most. Right. So if you want to demonstrate a commitment to voting rights, okay, sure, you can weigh in on legislation that may or may not be in your state. But you know what you can do? Give your workers t- paid time off to vote. And or make sure every, you know, run a registration drive so that everybody within your stakeholder community has every ample opportunity to be registered. For example, if you want to help veterans, help veterans. Don't give a speech. Don't endorse legislation as what you think you're doing. Those are modest contributions. Businesses are really important players in society. And especially post-pandemic, people don't trust big business, but they trust their employer. In the same way, people don't like Congress, but they often like their congressperson. Every business leader is a, an employer somewhere locally. You, at the moment, have more trust than many. Uh, you know, be cognizant of that. Uh, make sure your actions match your values. Make sure you do what you say and say what you're going to do. Um, it's a really important time when there is so little trust across society broadly for employers to continue to recognize this is both um, a business essential thing and a, so- and a societal essential thing. Bruce, it's great counsel. Uh, it's a great slide deck. Where can folks go if they want to pull up the deck? Hopefully to the uh, show notes of, uh, of 14th and G. Be my uh, Twitter at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N is uh, I always have my most recent slide deck as my pinned tweet. That's super simple. Uh, if folks love this stuff, A, what's wrong with you? But B, find me on LinkedIn because <laughs> I always post these every quarter on LinkedIn. So it's an easy way for people who want to get them to get them. Pull up the slide deck and subscribe to 14th and G 
on iHeart, iTunes, or Spotify. Bruce Melman, thanks for joining me on 14th and G.